what I try to do is just bring a give us, you know, try to give a summary and give an overall idea about Vijayanagar Empire. Fine. So the first question is why Vijayanagar Empire and why city of victory? Like Vijayanagar Empire existed for 400 years down south. The more critical part is this empire actually was formed when, you know, most of the older empires in the south were actually breaking up due to the Islamic invasions. I mean, you had Islamic invasions coming from the north. The Islamic invasions had overrun most of the north. I mean, all the most of the kingdoms in the north were totally destroyed. It was totally taken over by the Islamic rulers. And they swept into the south and, you know, south you had some particular dynasties like the Pandyas, the, Ch the Cheras, the Kakatiyas. All of them were being destroyed. All of them also had to face the brunt of the Islamic invasion, especially Alauddin Khilji time and Malik Kafur. So at the, just at the time when the Islamic invasion, when the Islamic rulers seemed set to completely take over the south and Deccan, that was the time Vijayanagar Empire came up. And for 400, for 400 years, you know, it like stood like some kind of, what do you call a bulwark, you know, kind of resistance to the Islamic rule. The, the reason why Islamic rule could not fully penetrate down south and Deccan. And that the reason was the Vijayanagar Empire. But the sad, but the fact is what I observed is, outside of south, unless, I mean, unless people had come to Hampi, not many really had an idea about the Vijayanagar Empire. Not many really had an, had, a, had an idea about the Vijayanagar Empire. And I don't blame them because most of the CBS history textbooks I see, it's hardly one, one and a half page on the Vijayanagar Empire. And that's the reason why I came up with this book and series so that, you know, people get to know of it. And I mean, uh, what I've given is a very layman's, layman's viewpoint of Vijayanagar Empire. So that's what my, uh, the focus of my topic was, to, uh, the presentation is also going to be on. Fine. So the backdrop. So how did the Vijayanagar, where did the Vijayanagar Empire come from? Before we talk about the Vijayanagar Empire, let's just look at what was happening before that. If you take the year, it was like 1,180, that is, what was happening was if you take down south, you had four major empires. One was the Pandyas who were in Madurai. The other one was the Cholas in Tanjavur. The other one was the Chalukyas who were in Badami, which is like it's in Karnataka. Hoizalas who were in Halabid and Kakatis of Barangal. And most of them had very flourishing civilizations, very flourishing kingdoms. They were very famous for their temples, for their pretty rich temples. So that was the time when India attracted attention all over the world because of her wealth. I mean, most of these, these kingdoms, though they were at war with each other frequently, they built up flourishing civilizations, huge flourishing civilizations, pretty advanced civilizations, very rich and prosperous. And of course, that news spread across the world that there was India, one of the richest lands. And that riches attracted one of the invaders, which was being Ghazni. Or actually, it was Ghazni, is not his name actually. He was actually a province in Afghanistan. So, Muhammad of Ghazni was the one, I mean, one of the more famous invaders. He heard of this wealth of India and he was the first one to attack, first attack India somewhere in 1002. Okay, so he defeated, I mean, freeze, I mean, he started sweeping through the north of India. First, he started with Jaipala, the Kabul Shahi ruler. Yeah, that was the entire uh, northwest, that is the Afghanistan part. Once upon a time, it was pretty much it was pretty much a Hindu-Buddhist kingdom. Post the Muslim invasion, all those kingdoms were wiped out. It became a totally Islamic place. And that started with Ghazni. 
he defeated Jay, well, the Kabul Shahi ruler Jaypala, and then after that he, he started on the north in northern India. So by 1113, the entire north was overrun. All the major kingdoms in the north they had fallen one after the other, like the north, the Taneshwar, Madura, Kanauj, and all the famous, very famous civilizations, kingdoms which are there in the north. All of them were conquered or destroyed by the repeated invasions of Ghazni, and of course. I think most of you must be aware to some extent of Somnath. The Somnath temple, which was reputed to be one of the richest temples then, which was reputed to be one of the very richest temples then, you know, it faced repeated attacks by Ghazni. He plundered its wealth. He plundered its wealth. He broke the particular Shivlinga also. And in, in fact, it is said that the wealth which he took from Somnath, he used that to build his own capital. So, this destruction of Somnath, I mean, there were repeated attacks on Somnath. And after Ghazni, the second invader, second Muslim invader who, who attacked India, that was of Ghori. And Muhammad of Ghori, again, like he made repeated attacks on India. Initially, he was repulsed many times by Prithviraj Chauhan. But what happened was like the Battle of Tadain. I'm, I'm not going to very much into details of all this, just give you a brief overview. In 1192, he had the Battle of Tadain where he was betrayed by Jai Chen. I mean, I think most of you must be aware of the story of Prithvira, Jai Chen, Samyukta. So he was betrayed by Jai Chen. He lost the battle, he lost to Muhammad Ghori. And this defeat of Prithvira Chauhan in 1192, in a way laid the foundation for the Islamic rule in India, which was primarily the Delhi Sultanate. Fine. The first Islamic ruler, what we call as a slave dynasty, it was started by Qutubuddin Ibak in 1209. Basically, he was, it was called as a slave dynasty because this Qutubuddin Ibak was working as a, was a slave under Muhammad of Ghori. Later, he founded his own kingdom, which he called as a slave dynasty. And he, yeah, predictably, Jaichan, who betrayed Prithviraj, was killed by this Qutubuddin Ibak. And he completely, no, he completely conquered the entire northern plains up till Bengal. As you can see the map, if you can see the map of what is the Islamic rule, it was the entire northern plains and up till Bengal were completely conquered by the Islamic rulers around that time. And after, uh, again, after the slave dynasty in 1290, you, you had Jalaluddin Kilji who overthrew the slave dynasty. I mean, slave I mean, again, this, who overthrew the slave dynasty and founded what is called as the Kilji dynasty. And Jalaluddin Kilji in turn was killed by his own nephew, that is Zuna Khan. In real name was Zuna Khan and of course, Alauddin Kilji, I think his name is pretty famous nowadays for obvious reasons. So here what happened was, till Alauddin Kilji, actually, yeah, one thing is like, everybody knows about Alauddin Kilji, Padmini and all, but there's another thing is, Alauddin Kilji, see, till then most of the, the Islamic rule was mostly established in the north. It was primarily established in the north, that is the Gangetic Plains, Bengal and Gujarat. Alauddin Kilji, what he did was, I mean, he conquered most of Rajputana, most of Rajasthan and all he conquered. And after that, he turned his attention towards the south and Deccan. Now, these empires, I mean, these once these kingdoms once upon a time were one of the most flourishing kingdoms. They are also entering into their last stages. They are also entering into their final stages like most kingdoms. So, till in the 14th century, I mean, till then, the south and Deccan was relatively less affected. Compared to what was happening in the north, south was not that much affected by the Islamic invasions. But after, once Alauddin Kilji came to power, he started spreading it and then the invasions came out 
and of course that was Malik Kafur, his eunuch slave with which you, you had that kind of relationship. He was the one who led that invasion down south. Malik Kafur, the eunuch, his slave, he was the one who led that invasion down south. Okay, and the first kingdom to fall was Devagiri, which was like the capital of the Yadava dynasty. Uh, the Yadava dynasty. So that was the first kingdom to be attacked. Its ruler Ramchandra was killed, and by 1293, the Yadava rule was the Yadava kingdom was destroyed. Devagiri is more popular to us nowadays as Dawlatabad. If anybody of you have been to, anyone of you has been to Ajanta Elora, you must have, or Aurangabad, you must have seen Dawlatabad. That was Devagiri in ancient time. That was nothing but that was Devagiri in ancient time. After the Islamic rule, it became Dawlatabad. So this Devagiri was captured by him, the, the, the end of the Yadava rule. After that, he went further south. He had the Kakatiya rule at Warangal, which is near to my place. Three kilometers from, I mean, just like around three hours from Hyderabad, Warangal, which was had this Kakatiya rule, Kakatiya dynasty, which was again one of the more flourishing kingdoms in the country. That too was fell to the Islamic invasion. That is in 1309, Warangal, which is the capital of Kakatiya dynasty, that too fell. And soon the Kakatiyas also became, came to an end. He swept further down and then the Hoysalas. 1311 Hoysalas, I am not sure if anybody have been to Halabid or Halabid, yeah, you must have seen the Hoysala dynasty, you know. So that was the next kingdom to be overrun. And again, its ruler Veerabalala was forced to pay tribute and he was actually killed in a pretty rather grisly manner, you know. It was like, it was like actually burnt alive to death. Fortunately, what happened was, though Malik Kafur came up till south, he was checked by the Pandya rulers. I mean, after finish, after after defeating the Yadavas, after defeating the Kakatiyas, and after defeating the Hoysalas, he came further down south to Pandyas who were ruling over Madurai and Tamil Nadu, Kerala. Fortunately, Vikrama Pandyan, the ruler, he checked the Pandyan invasion. He man, I mean, he managed to check this uh, invasion of Kafur. But even then, Trichy, two major cities in Tamil Nadu, Trichy and Tanjavur, both of them were conquered and there was heavy scale destruction. It was like a typical Muslim invasion. They would go everywhere they would go. Either temples would be raised or cities, towns and towns would be massacred, you know, exterminated. So it was that, so fortunately Madurai was saved. Fortunately Madurai was saved from the Kilji invasion, but Tanjavur and Trichy could not escape that kind of destruction. So why I am telling all this is like, because this is to give a backdrop of what why the Vijayanagar Empire was actually significant. So as you can see, what was happening so far is the Muslim rule had totally, Islamis, the Islamic rulers had totally taken over the north. And the entire Gangetic Plains, Bengal, Gujarat, maybe Rajasthan, yeah, still the Rajputs were there, but most of north was taken by them. Most of north and Bengal was taken by them. And the Deccan, that is starting from Maharashtra onwards, Deccan, south, it was still not completely untouched. But even by that time, most of, uh, at least most of the Deccan was also occupied by the Islamist rulers. Fine. And couple of more years, what would happen is, it would have, it's, I mean, entire India would have been under Islamist rule with no particular, no resistance to offer. And this is the reason why the emergence of Vijayanagar Empire is very significant. So, as, as I told you, by 1330, the Delhi's were not, the, the North was completely under the Delhi Sultanate. 
and all these these great dynasties <coughs> the cholas the pandyas the chalukyas i mean once upon a time of course all of them were great dynasties great kingdoms great rulers but like any kingdom all of them had they come into their final stages and you know they could not face the invasion they could not resist the invasion of the islamist rulers and most of them have suffered heavy defeats the kingdoms were also ending so it was a that kind of crossroad situation that kind of crossroad situation you know where the islamic rulers were totally threatening to overtake the south just as the way did, they did with the north and the west fine at the same time what happened was you also had muhammad bin tughlaq you know after i mean the kilji dynasty came to an end you had the tughlaq dynasty coming into the picture and that that was a time you had muhammad bin tughlaq coming as a ruler around the same time and tughlaq of course i think most of us he would it's a quite familiar name because of his cranky ways is known for his very eccentric eccentricities and also his very cruel kind of behavior i mean he was a sort of enigma he was very intelligent on one side he was supposed to be very intelligent very learned but he was also very eccentric absolutely cruel absolutely cruel and of course is pretty much disastrous policies i mean that's a different topic altogether and here what was happening was like this now the dynasties down on they already suffered heavy defeats under alauddin with alauddin kilji and now they are fearing what was happening if tughlaq once tughlaq start, once the tughlaq army comes i mean that would be the actual end of it by now most of these dynasties these kingdoms were totally broken you know all all was left was for the final annihilation to take place so here that was the time there was some need for some kind of resistance or some kind of empire in the south as in south which could actually resist the islamic rule which could actually resist the islamic rule so here so it was like at the crossroads situation all the old kingdoms were completely in their final stages of decay so a new kingdom was needed or a new empire was needed that could resist the islamic rule fine so and that is that and that is where the vijayanagar dynasty came into the picture the founders now basically what was happening was with most of these oh, so kingdoms falling the people who belong to these kingdoms be it the hoysalas or kakatiyas or the chalukyas they started looking towards an alternative i mean like some kind of common alternative that could resist the muslim the islamic invasions down south and protect the essential nature of india of civilization and that was the time you had two brothers named harihara and bukaraya here two brothers who were named harihara and bukaraya who founded this vijayanagar empire why they know the they are they were actually uh, they are different there are different theories about how where they were from their father was called sangama in fact the, one of the first dynasties the first dynasty of vijayanagar in fact is called as the sangama dynasty the so there were couple of different theories like as per one theory these brothers were serving under the hoysalas they were serving under the hoysala ruler virbalala 3 and there was already one place called hosapatna which was the which was where vijayanagar empire developed i mean that was one theory what was that was a one theory of course there is another theory saying that these two the brothers actually served in the kakatiya empire they were captured you know they were captured when varangal was taken defeated by the khilji rulers and converted to islam and then they did a garvapsi again i mean there is that theory also but again that that at the theory i mean this theory again was more this was it was more like from all these yeah these muslim scholars like farishta ibn battuta that was it was theory propagated by them 
Again, historically, there was not much basis for a theory, though this is one of the theories floated that that was the brothers. There was, and finally, as per Sewell, they were uh, the, the generally accepted theories. These brothers were in charge of the Kakatiya treasury. Harihara and Bukha, both of them were in charge of the Kakatiya, the treasury of the Kakatiya kingdom, and they also served in the army. So the generally accepted theory is once the Kakatiya empire fell, I mean, once Warangal fell to the Kilji rulers, these brothers escaped from there. And they went to a place called Anegundi. Anegundi, if you have been to Hampi, it comes near to Hampi. It comes near to Hampi. And Hampi was on the left bank, Anegundi is on the other bank. So the Anegundi, I mean, that time it was a pretty small, it was a small, it was not a kingdom, it was a small principality kind of, a very small, minor principality kind of thing. So these brothers escaped to Anegundi, which is the, I mean, this is generally taken as the, this is generally accepted, this is the generally accepted theory of where these brothers had come from. Those are conflicting theories of it. So here, these, the, after the after Varangal fell, after the Varangal fell and the Kakatiya dynasty came to an end, these brothers took refuge at the Raja. So Harihara was the minister, worked as a minister, and Bukka was the treasurer. Fine. So here, what happened was, Mamak Tughlaq's nephew was a Bahauddin. I mean, so he made a rebellion against Mohammed bin Tughlaq. He made a rebellion. He rebelled against his uncle, and predictably, he fled to. He, I mean, once the fighting broke out, he fled to this uh, Anegundi. He took refuge in this particular place. Anegundi to escape from his uncle. So here, what was happening was, but so once uh, so Mohammed bin Tughlaq laid siege to Anegundi, he laid siege to Anegundi, and the king of Anegundi knew that there was no way he could fight the. You know the, the Sultanate army, and he had to surrender Bahauddin to Tughlaq. This is actually a pretty grisly story. I mean, a very grisly story that Bahauddin once Tughlaq captured Bahauddin, he first flayed him alive, he first flayed him alive, cut him into pieces, cooked his flesh. Yeah, no, it's it's a pretty grisly kind of story. That he was tortured and executed to death in the worst possible manner. So, okay, fine. Now coming to the point, what Tughlaq did, what he put. Naik Malik, he put his Naik Malik as a governor in charge of that Anegundi. After some time, what, the, what these two brothers, Harihara and Bukka did was, they, they overthrew Naik Malik and they took control over Anegundi. And in a way, that laid the foundation for Vijayanagar Empire. So, in a way, that laid the foundation for Vijayanagar Empire. Okay. So, there was a there's actually an interesting story going that these two brothers, I mean, now they were, the ones they were going for a hunt. There was a very interesting back tale to this that these two brothers were once going for a hunt. You know, once they and at a particular place, they saw that the rabbit was actually chasing their hounds back. Generally, I mean, when they're going for a hunt, they used to take their hounds to it. They saw that at a particular spot, the rabbit was actually chasing their hounds, actually giving chase to the hounds back. And that was the time they felt that there must be something about this place. I mean, there must be something special about this place. Again, like this is again this is more a bit of a myth or a legend. I'm not sure, but generally this is like one of the stories that comes up about that comes up about uh, the founding of Vijayanagar. But what happened was once they, they saw this, these the brothers they met their guru Vidyaranya Swami. So before we go into Vijayanagar, there's we need to know about what Vidyaranya. Vidyaranya Swami was the found is considered as the patron saint of Vijayanagar. So he Vidyaranya Swami like. He was the inspiration behind founding. Like he was the guru to both Harihara and Bukka. He was the guru to both Harihara and Bukka. I mean, both of them looked up to him. 
you know sought him for spiritual advice or any other advice so when they went and told him that this is what we saw he advised them to actually you know said that this place has got some pretty magical qualities set up your kingdom there now vidyarinya swami actually was belonging to what was called as a shringeri math you know like one of the four maths which Adi, Adi Shankara established i think you must be knowing that shringeri dwarka badrinath and puri so again like shringeri also has got its own sort of myth saying that adi shankara when he went there you know he saw a cobra giving shelter to a frog and then you know it's felt that there must be something special about the place and that's why he established shringeri there that's that's the story of shringeri so vidyarinya swami his real name was his real name was madara madhava so he became i mean he was he we need to he took sanyasa he undertook the name of vidya shankara tirtha and he in 1331 ad madhava when he took sanyasam he assumed the name of vidyarinya vidyarinya means basically means a forest of knowledge technically it means a forest of knowledge fine and this is what is i mean this this is the temple of this is the this is one of the temples at shringeri if you can see it is in a bit of a circular shape a srikachakra shape if you can see the temple obviously it's in a bit of a circular shape actually if you observe the temple the significance is this that vijayanagar was also built in the same circular shape i think we must uh, some of you must have had uh, some idea about srikachakra it's primarily used in tantra so vijayanagar was also built in that particular form that particular circular format of chakra fine so here yeah, yeah so here what bother so apart from that this ringeri temple was uh, this he jarena swami like was the one who in, in, initiated harihara into what is called as the atma vidya and he is the vijarena swami was given the title called as karnataka simhasana pratishtana acharya or the founder of the karnataka throne okay and personally he was one of the greatest scholars in the advaita philosophy vijarena swami he was regarded as one of the greatest scholars in advaita philosophy he also wrote commentary on the vedas the vedanta panchadasi he was regarded as one of the highly highly regarded scholars and that was the reason both the brothers harihara and bukka used to look up to him a lot for any advice they they used to look up to him so here like this is a very interesting tale of founding of vijayanagar so once their guru told that fine this spot of vijay this spot called vijayanagar is suitable for your empire the brothers decided to found it there on the advice of their mas guru so what vidyarinya do was he first he prayed to shardamba or saraswati he prayed first for the first time he prayed to her and said that please grant us a kingdom hindu kingdom that is going to last for 2000 years okay and then he told the brothers he, he told both of them both harihara and bukka stand at a particular point is you take at this particular point you both of you stand there i'll blow the conch then you start digging i mean what do you call lays the foundation stone okay so right so what the brothers waited for the signal and when he blew that particular conch he blew the conch they hit it they started laying the foundation but what happened was immediately after they laid the foundation another conch sound came the brothers got confused i mean why is it that second time is that sound is coming fine and the brothers, again vidyaranya is supposed to have approached shardamba she told him that you know the time is not yet ripe for a 2000 year old empire but this is going to last at least for 200 years though it lasted more than that and 
she, she also made another prediction apparently that a 2000 year old Hindu empire can be maybe established after another 500 years. That's what she had apparently she told. So anyway, what, so on the advice of their brothers, on the right bank of the Tungabhadra river, so the Tungabhadra river is there. On the right bank of the Tungabhadra river, what we call as Hampi, that is where this capital of Vijayanagar was started to build. And like I told you, it's in the form of a Sri Chakra temple. In the form of the Sri Chakra, if you take it, it's actually completely, there are actually, it's like nine gates and you have three, four, three, four layers of wall. Right in the middle, you have the Virupaksha temple. If anywhere we go to Hampi, you can observe that. It's basically built in a circular shape. Basically built in a circular shape, supposed to be resembling the Sri Chakra. And this, what you're seeing is the Vijayanagar flag. What you're seeing in the picture here is the Vijayanagar flag of Vijayanagar that has the bore of that Varaha was that has the Varaha bore and the sun, moon and the Bengal. So this was the standard flag of the Vijayanagar empire that used to be blown. Fine. Okay. So, yeah. So like, yeah, so now the first dynasty was called as Sangama dynasty, which was Harihara and Bukka. Again, like it, I'm going to just give you a brief overview of most of the dynasties because it is not possible for me to go in depth into one, in depth into everything. Yeah, so the Sangama dynasty, so uh, this was called the, uh, started by Harihara and Bukka. So apart from Harihara and Bukka, those are the main brothers. There were actually five brothers. I mean, there was Harihara, Bukka, and there were two more brothers. There were three more other brothers. That was the Marappa, Kampana, and Mudappa. This, all these brothers, these five brothers, were the ones who were in charge of the first dynasty. Fine. So, and they they gave their they had titles like Karnataka Vidya Vilasa, Bashagita Prograranda. I mean, punisher of those feudatories who didn't keep their promises. And Vidyaranya Swami was the Rajguru. Vidyaranya Swami was the Rajguru for these, for the kingdom. So he was the one who played the role of the advisor to these brothers, advising them on the kingdom and their responsibilities, what they had to do. So basically, if you take the foundation of Vijayanagar, two families played a major role. One was the Sangam, one was the Harihara's family, that is Harihara, Bukka and their three brothers. Other one was Vidyaranya's family. I mean, Vidyaranya's brothers, Vidyaranya himself was a Rajguru. His brothers also later played a major role in the founding of Vijayanagar. So these two families actually played a crucial role in the establishment of Vijayanagar Empire and its foundation. <laughs> Fine. So yeah, so Vijayaranya Swami had his brother Saina. So he, Saina was, I mean, uh, Saina was a, became the Rajguru to Sangama tree, who was Harihara's nephew. And so here they the, so while Harihara and Bukkar looked after Vijayanagar, the brothers looked after different regions like Barappa administered what is called Chandragupti. It's a place called Chandragiri near Tirupati. If you go to Tirupati, it is right pretty close to Tirupati. Kampana governed over Nellore, which is coming primarily in the coastal Andhra region. And Mudappa looked after the Bulbagar region, which is primarily in Karnataka. And on the other side, like I tell you, Vidyaranya, one was like Sangama, who was, was looking after Sangama, two who was like primarily looking after the, the east, eastern provinces, that is primarily Andhra and uh, the coastal areas. The other brother of Vijayaranya was Boganata, who was the Jagadguru of Shringeri, who was the main Jagadguru Acharya of Shringeri. So, in effect, like these two particular families played a major, major role in the founding of Vijayanagar and its growth. So, in 1343 AD, Harihara passed away. 
Now, generally, like uh, uh, generally, it would have Kampana should have been the natural successor between the second son. But because, but again, like this was okay. This was one more feature of Vijayanagar is there was no natural law of succession. Generally, what what happens was like you know the one or the generally the elder brother or the second if he passes away, the next brother takes part. In case of Vijayanagar Empire, it was like uh, you know depending upon the capability. It was not seniority that determined. It depended determined the capability. Or who was the who had the more power? He took became the next ruler. In this case also, it was the same. Bukka was actually the third brother, not the second brother. After Harihara, the second brother was Marappa, and Bukka was the third. But Bukka was what? But Bukka here was second in command. He was like Harihara's right hand man. So he had the more power. He had more experience. So he was the one who became the next ruler. Now there are two good. There was a good thing and a bad thing. Good thing was people got select. I mean, you the one who had the power also took over the throne instead of just making it based on the what you call senior age. The negative side was the bloody battles for this. The negative side was, you know, obviously in the later stages there were a lot of battles for the battle of succession that broke out, and some of those, some of them were pretty much game Game of Thrones kind of plots. Because of this, because obviously there's going to be friction that, you know, uh, I deserve the throne, but somebody else took over. So, uh, so that was, I mean, that was the negative side of it, and. Actually, that became. I mean, in the later stages of Vijayanagar Empire, these continuous battles for the succession, you know, became pretty much fatal to the empire, and that in a, in a way resulted in its downfall also. Okay, but we'll come to that point later. After Harihara, I mean, Harihara, not not much is known about Harihara's rule. Had a brief rule. Bukka was the one who expanded his kingdom around. So he expanded it all the way up to Kalinga. It's nothing but modern-day Odisha, which is pretty much modern-day Odisha. So most of the South Deccan and Odisha, most of the rulers or kingdoms who are down south, they knew that on their own they did not have the resources, they did not have the strength, they did not have the power to resist the Islamic invasions. So tactically they accepted the sovereignty of Vijayanagar. So it was like all of them they saw Vijayanagar as the focus, as the alternative, and they all started gravitating, they all started moving towards Vijayanagar. They started accepting its sovereignty because they knew that. You know, accepting it was a it was a kind of beneficial deal for them. They would be part of the empire, and they would also have a kind of protection against any future invasion. And that was the reason for Vijayanagar growing, because like as I told you, all the kingdoms, all the older kingdoms which are there had already fallen. People were looking for a new king, for a new empire, and this is how Vijayanagar emerged. So all the smaller kingdoms they started moving towards Vijayanagar. They they accepted, they uh, they were absorbed into Vijayanagar. Or they accepted its sovereignty, and that's how the empire started growing. Nobody really—I mean—they felt it was beneficial. Okay. And like I told you, first is the defense against invasions from the north. The second one was the emerging Bahmani kingdom. So when I talk about Vijayanagar, its rivalry was actually more with what was called as the Bahmanis. So basically, when you take the history of Vijayanagar Empire, the history of Bahmani Empire is also—I mean, both of them. Come together, because the the it was the rivalry was actually between these two kingdoms mostly. Fine. So basically, like if you take the south and Deccan, what was happening was there were constant battles, mostly between the Hindu kingdoms among themselves, or between the Bahmani rulers and the Hindu kingdoms, and that is the reason why there were lot of changes in the alliances and tactically. So let us just 
yeah so when you are looking at the story of vijayanagar we not need to know a bit about the bahmani kingdom also bahmani kingdom was founded by alauddin bahman shah whose real name was hasan gangu it's actually he said he worked in the he was a servant in the in the home of a astrologer named gangadhar shastri in delhi later he is later he, he was he was general in mohammed bin tughlaq sami and he, he he became a governor down south after some time what happened was like after tughlaq died he broke away from the sultanate he established his own kingdom in 1347 and he took the name of alauddin bahman shah hasanabad is like current day gulbarga so again by bahman i mean generally one, one assumption is that bahmani kingdom is a corruption of brahman and all that again that's not a very it's not a historically it's not historically verifiable people assume there was, that's one theory going around that bahman was corruption of brahman and they named it bahman but generally the more accepted theories was he named it after the iranian general bahman jadohi bahmanis were primarily shias i mean they primarily shias and were primarily of persian origin the primarily persian shias okay so he, the theory is that it was named there was a general named like bahman jadohi who fought during the arabs during the war so they adopted the name of the dynasty the bahmani kingdom for it that is the generally accepted theory and the, initially this bahmani kingdom was at gulbarga which is in karnataka so if you take the next couple of years there was a constant battle for supremacy a constant rivalry between these two kingdoms the bahmani and kingdoms and the vijayanagar kingdom of course there was a third player also in this that the portuguese but they come much later but the primary rivalry was between these two kingdoms the bahmanis and the vijayanagar so if you take a look at the map okay uh, if you take a look at the map the one in the orange here represents a Vijay, the vijay the orange color is the one which is representing the vijayanagar empire the green then on the representing the smaller kingdoms and above one the, the above vijayanagar are the, what you call as the bahmani kingdoms which is generally how it was how the map of india looked during that time okay so so uh, alauddin bahman shah the first one so if he, uh, after that like uh, he conquered till up till adoni and he was succeeded by his uh, son mahmud shah one so the rivalry was primarily between mahmud shah one and buka not like again like typical islamist invasions every the bahmani the bahmani rulers used to make regular raids on the vijayanagar empire every time they made raids on the hampi you know they used to either break you know they used to destroy all the destroy whatever temples were there or you know and massacre the hindus it was a common feature so that was like mahmud shah like he played first he attacked warangal okay he then warangal all the people all the inhabitants were mostly mostly slaughtered and there was a the prince was there vinayaka deva he was again killed in a very gruesome manner like was tied and he was tied and made into a burning catapult and i mean killed in a rather gruesome manner like most most of the cases finally i mean warangal fell and became part of the bah- bah- bahmani empire and the wars actually mohammad shah of one himself he is estimated to have massacred around 5 lakh hindus the first ruler and devastated most of the carnatic carnatic provinces are the ones in tamil nadu the devastation was so large that it took some time for those provinces to recover from the devastation devastation is in same thing most of the major temples destroyed or towns and towns were just razed to the ground and in some cases there were forcible conversions fine yeah this is what this is what he said 
you know, when he was like, oh, this is what Muhammad Shah once said about that. It was ordered by the decree of providence and I have no power to alter it. When asked about why he was slaughtering and massacring all these innocent people, this is what he said. It was ordered and I have no power to alter it. Okay. And finally, I mean, there were different battles. Again, I am not going to go into in-depth details of the battles because there is a lot involved in the battles. But one of the uh, one of the critical one was the Raishur Gurb. Like uh, the, the, you have the, one of the two major rivers which you have down south are one is the Tungabhadra and one is the Krishna river. So between these two rivers, you had the, what is called as the Raichur Dhob region, which was very fertile, very strategic and most of the major battles were fought for that particular Raichur Dhob. And again between Bukha and Muhammad Shah one, there was for the control of this Raichur Dhob, there were a lot of battles and again it was a seesaw where sometimes Bukha Rai win and sometimes Muhammad Shah one win. Okay. Fine. And he also tried to capture Vijayanagar. He tried to capture that is Hampi itself. Almost for a month he laid siege to Hampi. Okay. But what happened was like again there was a very fierce resistance from the Hindus and they bet him back all the way across. They bet him back all the way across. So though he managed to capture some of the areas around Hampi, he could not capture Hampi itself. One more thing, one of the reasons why the, most of the Muslim rulers found it difficult to capture Hampi was the was the region like most of it was pretty rocky and the, the, there were around four to five lines of defense. So it was very difficult for them to penetrate to the defense. And being a rocky area, it was easy to do that ambush attacks. So, so, so after this, what happened was after Muhammad Shah died. After Muhammad Shah died, he was succeeded. He his son Mujahid Shah came to the throne. He wrote to Bukka saying that you know. You just restrict yourself to the Aptal Tungabhadra river, all the forts on that, give them to me. Fine. Bukha shot back saying that, no, no, we are not doing that. You vacate the entire dope. You vacate the entire dope and also Raichur Mudgal fort. Predictably, again, there was a constant battle between these two. A constant battle between these two. So what he did was, you know, he again, like his father, he laid siege to Hampi. He attacked it, but he felt, he felt that you know, taking a bring the siege of Hampi was not productive because it was not possible to defeat them there. So he tried to bring them out into the open. He said, let if we bring them out in the, in the open battlefield, it's easier to defeat them. What he did was there's a very rich temple near Hampi, a very very rich temple near Hampi containing a lot of precious stones and jewels. He attacked the temple, started looting all the precious stones and jewels. Okay, so. Once the temple was attacked, the Vijayanagar forces came out of Hampi and they attacked him in the open. And actually in the open warfare, he was having the strength. So initially what was happening was the Vijayanagar Empire, the Vijayanagar forces were on the verge of losing. Just then however, Kampana, the brother of Bukana came in time and he bet back and he bet back the Bujahid and Vijayanagar was fortunately saved for that time. So soon, in, I mean, later himself, Mujahid himself was killed by his own uncle, and within Bahmani kingdom itself, there were a lot of internal dissensions going around between the nobles and the royalty. And taking advantage of that, Bukha managed to recapture most of the areas back. Okay. Other one was like at the same time, one of the other feature was the Madurai Sultanate, which was further down south. Madurai Sultanate was carried by his son, the, 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 the son Kampana. Okay, there's actually a famous book called Madurai Vijayam on this. Fine. So, 
here there was near Madurai, there was a place called Tondai Mandalam. So that ruler actually, there's a ruler called Chambaraya, was initially defeated by uh, the Bukharaya because of, because of the rivalry between them. So Madurai till then was under the rule of the Muslim ruler, the Sultanate rulers. So Kampana, he turned his attention to Madurai. And soon, I mean, in, in a brief, fiercely fought battle, he managed to capture Madurai, recapture it back from the Islam, the, the, the Sultanate rulers. And soon Madurai, Srirangam and the surrounding areas became part of the Vijayanagara Empire. And his exploits, this Kampana's exploits in Madurai, his wife wrote a book called Madhra Vijayam in Sanskrit, which was primarily deals with this particular phase. I mean, his, his war against Madurai, his war to recapture Madurai from the Islamist rule. And he also captured Goa, Odisha. So you can see, if you can see the extent of Vijayanagar Empire, you can see that it, I mean, it covers a major part of the south, it covers almost the entire south and a major part of the Deccan. You can see the extent, you can see the extent of the Vijayanagar Empire. And they also had control of the coastal areas too. That means that they had the access to the trade also. Fine. After Bukha, his son Harihara came to the throne. Again, like, you know, like there were, uh, Harihara had to deal, first he had to deal with rewards. I mean, there were rewards by some, some of the feudatory, the smaller rulers against the Vijayanagar Empire. He had to subdue the revolt. Same time again, Bahamani kingdom had its own internal, internal dissensions breaking out between the rulers and others. So what happened was like, he took, taking advantage of this, Harihara captured Raichur. He, I mean, he captured the entire Goa. He captured Goa. And the entire Malabar coast was captured by them from Goa to the Kerala. So the entire Malabar coast was taken by Vijayanagara Empire. So and that gave them a pretty strategic advantage and also made it a trading power because they had the entire west coast in their grip. The entire west coast was there in the grip. And after that, he captured the eastern part of that is the eastern coast also, the places like Kondavidu and Karnu Nellur. So both the entire south was now under the Vijayanagar rule. Okay. And his son also, his son also went as far as Silon. Fine. And like, like as I told you, the, the, the major trigger for the conflict was the Krishna Tangubhadra dope, which the Vijayanagara rulers were keen to capture. So they tried to, I mean, his, his son Bukka the second tried to capture the Tangubhadra dope, but there was a, there was a, a, a attack from the Bamanari or Firoz. And you know, it was, he had a narrow escape where he had to escape with his life from the Bahmani rulers. Firoz had a brother called Ahmed who took the head of Kankanan and just like his brother, he used to make large scale attacks on the south region, south of Vijayanagar, you know, destroying villages and imprisoning people. So finally, this, after the, with the constant, after a lot of uh, raids and battles, Harihara to uh, agreed to some kind of truce with the Bahmani rulers. For some time to avoid these constant wars and destruction were taking place. Harihara too was also, uh, like most of the Vijayanagar rulers, he was, he was also a pattern of literature. I mean, he was actually, so he patronized a very famous Kannada poet called Madhra Jain, who, uh, who wrote a work called on Vedas called Vaitakamaga Sapnacharya. And after his death, there was a period of confusion. I mean, there were, there were a couple of weak rulers were there. The period of confusion and uh, then you had the first, I mean, then after uh, you had Devaraya one ascending the throne. I mean, he was not a direct successor. There was a bit of big period, big period of confusion and a bit of chaos there. Like there was some internal battles, and then you had Devaraya one ascending the throne in 1406. Okay, initially he, he had a pretty inauspicious start. 
Initially, he had to face a very heavy defeat at the hands of Firoz Shah. Bombay initially, and he also had to lose a very strategic force called Bankapur, which is now it's located in Karnataka now, and like it was that was captured by the Bahmani rulers, and around 60,000 Hindus in that were taken as prisoners. So both these were pretty terrible losses. It was not the best of way to start them by. So again, he had to sue for peace. He had to, you know, prevent this one. He had to again kind of signed a peace treaty with Firoz, and you know, give his daughter to marriage to him to stop this wars, stop the wars and devastation. And here, what happened was, in order, I mean, in order to get off this humiliation, what Devaraya did was, he started forming a sort of strategic alliance against the Bahmani rulers. With like there was the, the Kataiyabhima who was a was a Reddy ruler, and the other one was Anandeva Chola who was a Velma ruler and Pradha government. So these, he started forming a sort of strategic alliance with the smaller chieftains. He he realized that on on its own, Vijayanagar was having Vijayanagar army was having its limitations. So he started forming a strategic alliance with other smaller rulers. To counter the Bahmani rulers, and other there were other regions, the Reddy Rajula of Rajamandri, Rechala Padmanayaks of uh, 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 Central Telangana. So here again, again like actually you know this was like a bit of, I mean there was a bit of uh, alliances that were going on and on again. See because like there were different different, though Vijayanagar Empire was expanding, there were these kingdoms like some of the kingdoms which I mentioned here. Like the Rechala Padmanayaks and Eastern Gangas, and these kingdoms, they had no love lost with each other. So that's the reason why it was like one of the most, pretty much a strife problem. There were constant battles either between the Bahmanis and Vijayanagar or between the Hindu kingdoms among themselves. And because of these internal battles within the Hindu kingdoms, some of them used to support the Bahmani rulers also. Some of them used to support the Bahmani rulers against other rival Hindu kingdoms. Okay, so like. For example, the rulers of Kondavidu, which was one of the, which was one of the smaller kingdoms, they initially supported the Vijayanagar Empire. Now, when Devaraya started trying to ally with another Reddy rulers of Rajamandri, because these Rajamandri rulers were their rivals, they went and switched over to the Bahmanis. So you know, you can now we can understand why, how the Muslim rulers were able to, over the constant battles between the Hindu rulers. Taking the help of uh, you know siding with the Muslim rulers just to get over, just to get you get even with their rivals. That was what was happening out here. I mean, this was what was happening out here. So I think the picture is pretty much obvious. And this what happened was Padmanayaks who till then were the allies of Bahmanis, they switched to the Vijayanagar. So as you can see, this is typical you know pretty much a Game of Thrones, typical Game of Thrones stuff where allies keep changing. That was what was happening out here. So finally, anyway, Devaraya managed to stitch an alliance. He first captured Panagal, and with the Padmanayakas, he soon managed to capture most of coastal Andhra. He managed to capture most of the coastal Andhra Telangana region, and he managed to capture the entire Andhra Telangana region. With all these, he made all these alliances. He captured it and brought it under the Vijayanagar Empire. Fine. Okay. Now, okay, let's get uh, let's digress from the border uh, a bit. Take a break from the battles and all. The greatest achievement was in the level of field of irrigation and water supply. Now, one of now when everybody goes to Hampi, they see, yeah, it has great temples, great uh, palaces and all. But one achievement of Vijayanagar Empire, which is not known to many, was the irrigation and water supply network. And this, as I take, is one of the greatest achievements. Why? 
because hampi was in a very rocky region which doesn't have any water if you visit hampi it's a pretty rocky area just the tungabhadra river is flowing there but apart from that there is no water source and tungabhadra is also not a perennial river like ganga uh, it is like typical rain fed river so there was no consistent water supply and so where was such a big massive city like hampi going to get the water from where was such a massive city like hampi going to get water from somewhere and that was one of greater devara's achievement see he realized that lack of water i mean there was because of the lack of water it was affecting the farming as well as the the water supply to vijayanagar so here what it is the first thing what he did was across the tungabhadra dam he built a huge dam he had the foresight to see that you know the storing the water so he built a pretty huge dam across the tungabhadra river and you know like he got elephants to transport the boulders put them across the tungabhadra river and build a barrage and that helped to store the water it helped to irrigate the fields i mean this was something pretty visionary i mean pretty visionary in it was pretty visionary in those time looking at storing water conserving it and like i told you, you can see the picture like these are some of the canals that were in use if you can see the picture here these are some of the canals that were in use during vijayanagar time that carried the water right into hampi okay and other other major problem was the drinking water now vijayanagar hampi was like in a rocky pretty rocky location completely surrounded by boulders and all water had to be brought to hampi to, to satisfy the needs of its people you had to bring water from the lakes and the rivers to hampi so he built a massive aqueduct i mean most of these are in ruins if you can see the picture down most of these aqueducts are in ruins i mean we know about the roman aqueducts and all that but unfortunately not much is said about the aqueducts built by the vijayanagar empire which are an equally impressive feat of engineering so he built those aqueducts see like tungabhadra was around 24 kilometers away from hampi so he built those aqueducts like as you seen in the picture that would bring water from the tungabhadra river to hampi all the way along which was like a pretty much a pretty great feat of engineering this is pretty much a massive pretty much impressive feat of engineering supplying water to an entire city and mind you hampi was not a small city it's a massive city so supplying water to these people in a region which didn't have water supply which was completely rocky that was a stupendous feat of engineering fine and what he did was like this during devaraya's time hampi emerged or vijayanagar emerged as one of the largest cities in the world because of the regular water supply to hampi vijayanagar it soon became a flourishing center for trade and commerce because the water was coming people had, you know people could concentrate on the trade and commerce and of course like it helped the farmers around also fine so this is one major achievement of the vijayanagar empire see this is like one of the major smaller canals this was the canals inside the city this was like the canals inside the city which actually flowed from one home to other home outside like the pretty much larger canals out here. i'm i'm not exactly aware of the technical details of the dimension but see basically you get the larger canals bringing the water into the city and then they fed it into smaller canals like this so it was a pretty much a very advanced kind of water supply system that was actually being built out here as you can see here again unfortunately again most of these canals and aqueducts are pretty much in ruins now so you can just see some traces like this here and there that's all aqueduct is not exactly a canal it's a canal but it defenses it carries the water above the ground your canal is see canal is like it's carrying along the ground so the, the aqueduct is like the, the reason the roman aqueducts you can say a kind of pipelines 
And the reason why it ended the aquatics build was Humpy, if you can take, if you take a look at Humpy, it's built on an elevated location. So to bring the water from Tungabhadra river to Humpy, these aqueducts were needed. Yeah, the lifting water, again, there was, uh, they were kind of advanced, they had a kind of gating system. They had a kind of gating system where they, you know, where the water would flow into one, one lock into another lock and then, you know, lifting into the aqueducts. I mean, I'm not that much aware of the technical details in, in that case. But there was that kind of gate lock, locking system or gating system where they used to send the water from one chamber to another chamber and then, you know, put it and lift into the aqueduct and build it along. It was actually not just at Humpy, you know, actually if you, if you go in in many places in Andhra Pradesh, Telangana now, you have many old lakes, many lakes and all which are built by the Vijayanagar rulers. Especially in the surrounding area, that area called as Rayal Singha, which is a pretty rocky area. It's a pretty rocky and dry area. You have pretty of these huge tanks which are built by the rulers, essentially for saving the water. Fine. And they, apart from that, Devraya was also, was also a pattern of literature, I told you about Kannada portrait. The other, he was also patronized a very great Telugu poet called Srinatha, who was the author of Harivilasa. So this is the picture of Devraya felicitating Srinatha. Okay, he was uh, called as a Kavisarvabhama. And he actually, and during his time, there was a there was a pearl hall at Hampi. A pearl hall at Hampi where all the scholars used to meet. Basically, scholars, poets, all writers, all of them would meet at this pearl hall. So, in, apart from the fact, so the other reason, apart from the fact that Vijayanagar was becoming a center for all the other kingdoms, it was also becoming a center for all the artists, scholars, scholars, poets, painters, sculptures. All of them they started moving to Vijayanagar, and it also, I mean, it also became the city. It was also called as Vidyanagar during the time that is like the city of learning. So. As you can see here, if you can see what we are not, it was not, Vijayanagar was not just one big massive kingdom. It was also generating, it was also a civilization in its own, creating its own culture, its own art, its own architecture, which was a mix of every influences. Fine. And after Devaraya, uh, he was succeeded by Devaraya too. And again, like in 1426, Devaraya, he became the, uh, he became the ruler. And he, he captured the fort of Pandavidu, which is like located in Andhra Pradesh near Vijayawada. And again, one, there was one more rivalry with the Gajapati rulers of Odisha, of Kalinga or Odisha, the Gajapati rulers. So there was again, there, that was another constant rivalry that was placing, that was primarily for the control of the eastern coast. So the three success, so he managed to defeat the Gajapatis. He got back the territories lost and also conquered most of Kerala, Ceylon. I mean, like most of Kerala was conquered during this time, right? It's right up to Quillon and uh, up to Calicut. So during this Devaraya's rule time, it also extended from Kalinga. So Vijayanagar to Vijayanagar actually had the maximum extent from Kalinga to Malabar, from Gulbarga to Ceylon. And the other thing is like, you know, it also meant that they had position of the major ports on the western coast, like Bakhtal, Mangalore, Goa. All these ports were under Vijayanagar rule because of that, what was what they had a trading advantage also because they had control of these ports. I mean, and this was one area where the Bahmani Sultans could never defeat them. But the coast was one of their strong areas. And because of that, the trade was flourishing for them. Fine. Again, like again, I told you, like again, there was the battle between the Bahmanis, like Firusha again attacked in 1419. Initially, I mean, initially there was a pretty fierce, intense battle fought. 
where the first of Vijayanagar forces contract acted and sent Ferozshah retreating from the battle. But however, Feroz, Feroz brother Khan 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 he managed to repel the forces back. And Feroz brother, Feroz brother, he ascended the throne in 1422. So again, like I mean, because he fought even the death of his, I mean, his loss of Panagal, so he again attacked Vijayanagar with a huge army. Same tactics again on his way to attack Vijayanagar. Same tactics. What did Arjun Shah did was on his mercilessly devastating the last tract. Same thing, destroying temples. It was a standard tactics by the Bahmani rulers. I mean, like yeah, he was like much like like he you know he in fact Amar Shah one he made it a point that in a in a, if in a place there were like more than twenty thousand Hindus were massacred at a place he made it a point to celebrate that. Yeah, around temple idols were broken. Vedic patshalas, I mean yeah, the different Brahmin Vedic patshalas, they were desecrated. Obviously, there was bound to be a backlash against this kind of wanton destruction. So, what around five around five thousand Hindus, what they did was, they were enraged by what they saw this kind of destruction and desecration, and they struck back. They struck back fiercely at Ahmed Shah one, and he had to undergo a narrow escape again back. He had to give up his plans of Vijayanagar. And after some time, of course, again he laid siege for some time. He laid a long siege, and again Devraya too was forced to sue for peace. So after and after some time, again like Ahmed Shah was uh, came by his son Alauddin, and I mean who again tried to conquer Vijayanagar. So here, what was happening was like you know the till then what was happening was though the battles between the Vijayanagar and Bahmani rulers were going in a seesaw. Sometimes the Vijayanagar rulers were winning, sometimes the Bahmanis were winning. But more often than not, the Vijayanagar rulers were facing constant defeats. Constant defeats. I mean, they're massive defeats, and they had to give up large tracts of territory, wealth, and all that. So that was the time they they were to try to come up with a strategy on how to counter these Bahmani rulers. One one was like one was one tactic which he did was he took the trail of the Arabian horses. He found that the Arabian horses which they were using were much more faster. They did not get tired out easy. So he started. So because they had already they had control over the ports on the west coast, they started importing these Arabian horses to be used in army. The second advantage is the Bahmani forces actually had professional archers in their army, which the Vijayanagar forces lacked. I mean, they are they are pretty good at archery. So this was an advantage, a disadvantage with Devraya to try to overcome. So he actually uh, what he did was he took the decision to recruit Muslim archers into the army. Because that time, and these Muslim archers in turn trained Hindu archers also. Okay, of course, in retrospect, in, in hindsight, if you go into the later stages, you could see that this was a kind of it was not a very wise decision when you go into the later stages. But maybe due to the needs of time, or maybe due to compulsion, he had to take this kind of decision. It was not exactly a wise decision, but he had to take it. And but in the short run, this uh, this move paid off. And it had a, I mean, so but right now he had a pretty strong professional army with around 80,000 cavalry and uh, infantry. I mean, in the meantime, he had to face an assassination attempt by his own brother who tried to trade. I mean, there's a story where his brother calls him for his lunch, home to lunch, and he tries to assassinate him, and he escapes it narrowly, and his brother gets killed by those. So this was so under again like, but one thing we one thing we need to notice is. In spite of the constant battles within the Bahmani rulers, Vijayanagar was kept on growing. It did not diminish in strength. 
and under dev it kept on growing beat and uh, i mean beat in art and architecture beat literature beat its uh, beat trading it did not diminish they kept losing territories but the empire was actually getting richer and prosperous more day by day and they made great advances in architecture they made great advances in architecture they made great advances in literature fine so here i mean two people who visited vijayanagar during devarai to one was nicolo conti who was an italian traveler other one is a persian traveler named abdul razak both of them gave pretty glowing description of the city in their books in their uh, in their accounts like i told you one of the major features of vijayanagar then was like it had a pretty defense i mean like you had stone walls there large stone walls running around the city that kept out the invaders which nobody could actually break in this was the reason why vijayanagar till the, till the battle of kallikota nobody could actually break into the city because of its pretty strong defense it was pretty impenetrable kind of defense out here i i like, like i told you which i showed you already you had very elaborately constructed water canals that went right into the city it irrigated the fields and also had pretty huge gardens okay and like i told you, abdul uh, abdul razak wrote a very glowing account of vijayanagar calling it like one of the world's largest mag- greatest magnificent cities especially it had around the seven walls around it seven different walls around it okay yeah so like the seven walls were, like what are the features the seven walls were there the outermost layer was somewhere close to hospate hospate is the basically the base from which anybody wanting to visit hampi they get on at hospate that is where from where most people go to hampi so that was where the first layer of the walls were there fine and basically the first second and third walls were there fourth and fifth walls were, were basically you had a place called malpangudi i mean till today this place has some of the pretty old buildings if you go to hampi you can see them sixth place was near covered uh, the kamalpur tank and apart from that you had pretty huge bazaars okay from one of the and rajendranagar was at its peak it was reputed to be one of the richest richest kingdom where people actually used to openly sell pearls diamonds emeralds and rubies in the market like they used to actually you know like how we like the how we have the sabji the sabji mandi they used to actually openly they used to place those pearls and openly for display and sell it was had a flourishing trade in precious stones and those bazaars were pretty much famous for it people used to come there they used to buy pearls like how we buy how we generally buy vegetables nowadays they used to come and buy those pearls and all it was such a rich kingdom preciously so like diamonds rubies and emeralds there i mean like and there was a diwani khana where you know the diwan looking diwan was the prime minister would listen to the problems and there was a daftar khana which was primarily the sort of government office okay uh, where the where you had the government officers were there you had a mint to the right of the palace and then the governor's home okay and okay one of the uh, one major feature of vijayanagar empire was the maharnavami maharnavami celebration i mean there were grand celebrations for the other festivals like ugadi ugadi was celebrated well deepavali was celebrated well ganesh puja was celebrated well but the grandest celebration in vijayanagar was maharnavami i mean because it was like believed that you know it was being founded on a vijayadashami day or something they had that special significance for it so like here i mean you had elephants coming in from all corners of the empire from different places out here at one place so you can just imagine if you can just imagine the scene elephants all over the places richly decorated and all and for just for the sake of the maharnavami temples 
like you had huge pavilions erected just for the sake of the festival some going right up to seven stories again just imagine the scale and grandeur and then you had performances by dancing girls you had performances by jugglers you had feats by elephants and then you had fireworks huge fireworks going upon you had different games like you had wrestling you had i mean you had wrestling you had sword fighting during the i mean this entire festival festivities used to last for around the 9 days king used to sit on a throne the, the king used to sit on a throne which was made of gold that completely adorned with different pearls and diamonds and rubies and from there he used to visit the mahanavami celebration devrai to himself had this obligate of what is called as the gajavitakara meaning the elephant hunter he i mean apart from that apart from being a ruler he was also a poet i mean this was again one more feature of most vijayanagar rulers they were great writers also apart from the fact that they were all of them are good warriors and all they are great writers also and he wrote a collection of stories in kannada called as sobagine sone basically where the author is narrating to his wife okay so here what happened was like after the after the devrai died which is primarily the end of the sangapan dynasty there was a period where it was completely chaos and anarchy i mean it was both in the vijayanagar and bahmani kingdoms both of them were undergoing their period of chaos and anarchy with patterns of succession growing around i mean after devrai died like i told you that there was that because there was no primary that rule that the emperor you know the emperor's next born should succeed him it often resulted in conflicts breaking breaking out for the throne because they did not have the rule that only the son of the emperor should succeed him everybody would try to you know fight for the throne and which all often resulted in these all these dimensions so and during this time during this uh, chaotic period it was not just a vijayanagar empire 1458 alauddin shah passed away and the bahmani kingdom too started undergoing its own dissensions so it was actually the two major kingdoms were in a total unstable period leading to complete chaos complete anarchy everywhere okay so i mean you had so generally around this time you had mohammed there you had a person called gawan who played a vital role in recapturing the western ghost in goa and as again massacre of them and so here what happened was the bahmani empire till then which was an, it was a pretty much a monolithic empire around this time the bahmani kingdom also broke up till then it was pretty much a monolithic kingdom it broke up into five different empires so you had yusuf adil khan the governor of the bijapur who founded the adil shahi kingdom in bijapur qasim barid who was prime minister under mohammad shah he founded the barid shah kingdom at bidar imadun mulk founded the imad shahi kingdom at berar in maharashtra malik ahmed shah bakri who was the governor who established the nizam shahi dynasty at ahmednagar and kuli kutub shah in 1518 he established the kuli the kutub shahi kingdom in golconda so till then the monolithic bahmani kingdom was there that also broke up into five different kingdoms bijapur ahmednagar golconda bidar and berar of these of these uh, the five kingdoms bijapur ahmednagar and uh, golconda were the most stronger ones bidar and berar were relatively minor fine around this time what was happening was to the constant conflict between the bahmani and the vijayanagar rulers you had a third factor added into the picture that is the portuguese i mean till then it was the bahmanis and the vijayanagar rulers who were the two main players there and then in 1497 you had vasco da gama ending uh, coming to india with three ships and who made the jamorin of calcutta not Cal- calcutta over here 
and initially there was conflict between Vasco da Gama and all the native Jamorin rulers of Kerala. And in 1505, we had the other uh, Portuguese ruler, Almeida, coming as the viceroy. So he, real, he realized that Portuguese interest rate better than instead of those constant wars, it was better to have a kind of trading, a trading in India. Okay. So around this time, and around this time, now that you had this Italian traveler Vatama, who visited Vijayanagar, he wrote a very glowing account of Vijayanagar out here. And there were again constant battles between the Portuguese and primarily the Calicut Zamorins and uh, you know, like we had one in 1505 and another in 1506. Now, the reason why I brought up the Portuguese is Vijayanagar Empire had a very strategic tie-up with the Portuguese. The reason why I brought up the Portuguese factor is they had a strategic tie-up with the Portuguese against the Bahmani rulers. The third and the third, the third player in the picture. So, and that leads us to the great, the main ruler, that is the Sri Krishna Devaraya. Every major kingdom has one of has one great ruler. Like Marathas, you take Shivaji. I mean, um, uh, if you take Gupta, Samudra Gupta, Chandra Gupta. So similarly for Vijayanagar Empire, it was Sri Krishna Devaraya. I mean, after the Sangama rulers, you had the Tuluva and Silova, Salova dynasty. Unfortunately, because of time constraint, I have to skip that. So. Vijay Sri Krishna Devaraya belonged to the Tuluva dynasty and he ascended, he, he came to the throne in 1505. Basically, it's generally believed to be Krishnashtami day. And he proved to be the mightiest emperor of the Vijayanagar Empire. I mean, he was had a pretty huge, pretty strong muscular personality which uh, used to exercise regularly. And he was, and also like as a warrior, he used to personally lead from the front. It was not like he never used to direct back. Every time there was a war, he used to go directly from the front. Fine. So, he, Krishnadevaraya was the one who came up with this tactical partnership with Albuquerque, who was the governor of Goa, because he realized that they could be a front against the Bahmani rulers. So, so he came up with a tactical partnership with the Portuguese out here. And the, there were two advantages which he got from the partnership with the Portuguese. One was getting all the Arab and Persian horses. Other one was the Portuguese supply supplied the artillery. Bahmanis had good artillery. The Vijayanagar Empire again that was one area where they are lacking. So tying up with the Portuguese, they got hold of that artillery, which would be a very vital factor in for them in the battles in the future. Okay. I'm sorry. And this apart from the artillery, the Portuguese also helped in building these. Uh, you saw all those aqueducts and canal networks. The Portuguese again played a major role in, you know, strengthening all those aqueducts and canal networks in Vijayanagar. So, here the first, uh, what Krishnadara did was, the first challenge he had was from the Gajapati rulers of Odisha. So, he first took his expedition against the Gajapati ruler. The first fort which he attacked was Udaygiri, which you can see on the top, uh, the topmost corner. Now, all these forts were actually, most of them are situated on hills, surrounded by thick fortress. It was not very easy to penetrate them. So the first fort he attacked was Vijayanagar Udaygiri in 15 and out of a very long 18 month long siege. As you can see, the fort is not easy to capture. It is on a hill, thick forest around, very steep ascent. So he made a made a long siege, managed to find a secret entrance into the fort and capture it. And after capturing in Udaygiri, he visited the Tirupati Temple. If you can go, if you, if you have any of you have, if you have been to Tirumala, Venkateswara Temple at Tirumala, those three statues were built in his honor. That is Krishnadevaraya and his two wives. 
that's the picture is there at the Venkateswara temple in Tirupati. After that, he, he captured another two other hill forts that is Kondavidu and Kondapalli also. And that he laid, made a very huge defeat to the Gajapati rulers. And there were two things here. The ruler, the Gajapati ruler Pratapurudra gave his daughter in marriage to Krishnadevaraya. And it also brought an end to the conflict between the, with the Gajapati rulers. So they became a kind of allies with the Vijayanagar rulers and them. Okay, the other important achievement of Sri Krishnadevaraya, the Bahmani rulers. Till date, to date, till date, what was happening was between the cons, there was constant conflict between the between Vijayanagar and Bahmani rulers, with, with neither side actually giving, not gaining a full victory. Sometimes they won, sometimes these won, and which was completely resulting in total devastation. Sri Krishnadevaraya decided, fine, not this way, give a decisive defeat to all the Bahmani rulers so that they'll never attack again. So he decided, he, I mean, he made a decision that to stop all this, the regular, I mean, the Bahmani army, they regularly used to make all those loot and raid tactics. Raid, loot, get back the wealth. He decided to time, put, a end to the, put a stop to this forever. So first he went after the uh, uh, Adil Shah, Yusuf Adil Shah, who is the Bizapur ruler. Okay, and the, at the Battle of Diwani, he decisively defeated Yusuf Adil Shah in such a way. And he also used to do one thing. When he used to defeat somebody, he used to take it till the end. There's no capturing. So he pursued Yusuf Adil Shah till the end, cornered him. He shot him down with arrows. So, I mean, he was, his, 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 his mission was exterminate the enemy in such a way so that they never get the strength to hit back again. So, Bahama, Yusuf Adil Shah was defeated. So, Bijapur was subdued. But, I mean, Bidar was also defeated. Next was, I mean, he freed Muhammad Shah, the ruler of Bijar, put him to the throne. And he, he, Krishnadevara had a very able prime minister called Timarasu. Okay, so he managed, so he defeated Kuli Kutub Shah of Golconda, he brought back most of the territory. So he inflicted such decisive defeats on the Brahmani Sultans that for some time till he passed away, none of them dared to attack Vijayanagar again. That was his major achievement. I mean, he actually put a complete stop to the Brahmani raids. Put a complete stop to the raids. They, they never dared to attack Vijayanagar till he was alive. Because such was the fear he inspired. Because he inflicted such crushing defeats on them. And like I, like I told you, his reign was according to the golden age of Telugu literature. Now, Krishnadevaraya was a writer himself. Apart from being a great warrior, great ruler, he was a great writer also. So he was, I mean, he himself was called as an Andhra Boja. He was called as the Andhra Boja because for his fluency in writing. And he was fluent in three languages, Telugu, Kannada and Tuluva, which was his native language. Okay. And he, he was named as Narasimha Krishnadeva. I mean, one of the titles he, he got was Narasimha Krishnadevaraya. I mean, his poet described him as the name of Narasimha Krishnadevaraya, at whose name the Turks quivered and the elephants ran away. Okay. So, he, he uh, I mean, he patronized the Madhava scholar Vyasatirtha, who was like one of the, uh, the, the trinity of the Dvaita Vedanta philosophy. And Vyasatirtha was Sri Krishnadeva's Raja, Rajaguru, as well as the Kuludevata, who used to advise him on all the matters, both related to kingdom as well as spiritual one. Krishnadeva, I mean, apart from himself, like he patronized some of the famous writers like Mala, uh, Kannada writers, like one was uh, Malanarya of Gubbi, other one was Chattubhidal Nada. And he himself was a very uh, renowned writer. 
So this this temple which you have seen, it's in a place called Sriyakulam in Andhra Pradesh. Okay, it's believed that Sri Krishna Devaraya, one day on his expedition, he rested at this temple. It it the deity in this temple is called as Andhra Mahavishnu. I mean, he was believed to be a very powerful king. Incarnation of Vishnu was a very powerful king. So there's a there's a kind of tale that goes that while Sri Krishna Devaraya was resting at this temple, he had a dream where Andhra Mahavishnu came to him in the dream. and told him to write in telugu he told him to write in telugu in the dream and that was when he started writing i mean he wrote a book called i mean this is this is that statue of sri krishna devaraya in that temple here out here in commemoration so he wrote a book called as amukta malyada basically this is the story of andal and vishnu this is the story of anandal vishnu it is considered as um, it's considered as one of the magnum it's, it's a pretty considered as one of the great works of telugu literature okay and the other feature of krishna devaraya's court was the ashtadigajas ashtadigajas are the eight elephants i mean there's a belief that you know there are eight elephants in, which actually hold up the earth in different directions like i told you the names of pundarika vamana uh, anjana and of course airavat the elephant of indra so these poets eight poets eight great poets in krishna devaraya's court they were called as the ashtadigajas they are called as ashtadigajas okay and of course each of them had their own individual style one of the most famous poets was alasani alasani padana who was called as andhra kavita pitamaha i mean the what do you call the patriarch of telugu poetry and he wrote his famous work is manucharitra i mean there is a picture of sri krishna devaraya and alasani padana and krishna devaraya in fact revered alasani padana to some to such a large extent that you know he often take that golden bracelet that golden bracelet he himself would bend down and put it on around his leg and there were times when he himself would carry the pallaki in which he was carrying that was the reverence which he had for alasani padana the senior most of all the eight poets the other po- famous poet which he had was nandithimanna who hailed from anantapur district okay he and he he was also called as mukutimanna because he wrote a lot of series of poems on mukku mukku in telugu means nose so he wrote a series of couplets and poems on that so the reason why he was nicknamed as mukutimanna to okay and one of his favorite uh, his famous work was parijata paharnam which is dealing with the story of satyabhama taking that uh, parijatam plant from uh, with along with krishna from the heavens that 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 story tada one was madayagari mallanna he were and uh, his he wrote a famous book called rajshekar charitram which is based on the uh, legendary ruler of avanti kingdom other one was durjati kavi who basically wrote most of the books in praise of shiva His famous one is Sri Kalahasti Mahatyam, a very famous uh, temple town in Andhra Pradesh. Ayyala Raju Ramabhadra, who was called the also Pillala Ramabhadra Bhadradu. The other one was Pingali Surana. He, I mean, he wrote a very famous book called Kalapurna Deyam, where, where the first time you made use of techniques like flashbacks. And uh, Ramaraju Bhushanadu, who was apart from being a very famous poet, was also a pretty great musician too. He played the veena. and of course tenali ramkrishna which i think most of you would be familiar of course while most of us are familiar with tenali ramkrishna as a jester or something he was also a pretty great he was also a great author too he all he wrote he wrote the pandra he, he wrote the pandurangam hatyam basically the story of pundarika and vetala vitoba and maharashtra and that is actually considered as one of the great panchamahavikavyas or what is the five great works in telugu literature 
So these Ashtadigajas were the ones who adorned Sri Krishnadevaraya's court. And they used to daily meet in, in a session that they called as Bhuvanavijayam. Bhuvanavijayam means basically victory over the earth. I mean, even now, in, even now in, uh, they keep holding recreations of this Bhuvanavijayam where, you know, the, uh, these poets meet and they come up with the poetry. Basically, the poets would meet, they would come up with debates, you know, uh, debates with each other. Okay. Yeah, let's come to the other part, the architecture part. Now, Vijayanagar Empire, I told you, it was founded by different styles. Like you had the Hoysala style, you had the Pandya style and the, the Chola styles. Okay, and it had, so the, what you call as a Vijayanagar architecture developed in its own distinct style. It was actually basically a mix and match of all these styles, the Chola, Pandya, Chalakya style. And because it was located in a very rocky area, there was heavy usage of granite. There was heavy usage of granite in this one. And most of the temples, if you can see here, like there's a, basically they had a Garbhagriha, the, what you call it, the Sanctum Sanctuarum. And then you had a porch like outside. And somewhat larger temples or medium-sized temples, like apart from that, they had a chamber called the Sukunashi or corridor which is connecting the Garbhagriha with the outermost Mandapa. Apart from that, you also had a Ranga Mandapa, which was basically a huge hall that was used for dances and meetings. And there were, and one feature of these temples was the Raya Gopuram, if you can see here. A very common feature of most of the temples built during the Vijayanagara time, they are called as the Raya Gopuram, because they are usually built by the rulers of Vijayanagara. So they used to call them the Raya Gopurams. If you can notice the temple, the Gopurams, they were like pretty huge. The, those Gopurams are pretty huge. I mean, they can be seen from miles around. And these, and, and they are richly decorated with different statues of gods, goddesses, and other men and women. And of course, like you had the Pradakshinapada for the devotees to go around. And the temple, the pillars had what is called as yalis. If you can take a look at the bottommost part, this part. If you can take a look at the bottommost left corner, yalis were basically like sort of, you know, horses with their legs lifted. So this was a, another very common feature of the Vijayanagar school of architecture. Okay. The other one was the mantapas, which you can see in the top left corner. Basically, with the built on square plinths uh, with uh, different freezers and entrances on all sides. Another common feature of most Vijayanagar temples was the Pushkarnis, which are basically tanks, stepper tanks, where which are having the water, you know, with a pretty symmetrical formation. So I can see they had a very advanced architecture. They had a very advanced architecture, and I mean, even if you now go to Hampi, though uh, most of it is in ruins, you can see, can see that the sort of brilliance they had in the architecture there. And the, the palaces which they had in Vijayanagar, they, you know, they had a very they were very, the palaces, they had a very intricate system. I mean, you had doors, I mean, you had very doors, passages leading into each other and sort of secret passages way. That was, and the, some of the larger palaces had pretty side extensions. And uh, they also had water tanks with highly decorative sports. Uh, like, you know, which are like basically elephants or yali sculptures. I mean, two famous sculptures from the Vijayanagar era. One is the huge Ganesha. What is the Kadalekul Ganesha? This is at Hampi. The other one is the huge Nandi at Lepakshi, one of the large, very large Nandi. I mean, these two are very famous motifs of the Vijayanagar era out here. Like I told you, all good things have to come to an end. So, so one of the greatest and richest empire in the world, someday it had to fall. And that was that the end was coming, which is actually one of the saddest part. So after or after close to four centuries, it was coming. Now, any great empire or kingdom in the world has to collapse. I mean, someday or other it has to decline or fall down. 
So the difference is Vijayanagar Empire's collapse was sudden. Generally, what happens? Most kingdoms just slowly fall into decay. Vijayanagar Empire was not done. It was a sudden blow, like a sudden death blow. It was like kind of blow that actually shattered it, and that actually makes it more, much more tragic. It actually makes it much more tragic. See, when Vijayanagar Empire fell, it was still one of the largest empire in the south. Typically, empires when they fall, when they lose their territories, weaker rulers. But Vijayanagar, when it fell, but it was still the largest empire in the south. Okay, it still had a pretty huge army. It had a very thriving trade. It was still one of the richest empires in the south. Hampi was still one of the largest cities, such a large city that when it was looted after the Battle of Talikota, it took four days to completely burn it down. So you can just imagine. It took four days to completely burn down Hampi. So you can just imagine such a large city. And even then, that city could not be fully destroyed. In spite of the destruction, it still managed to survive. Okay. So why did yeah? So what happened? Why did such a big, huge, and massive empire collapse out here? Krishnadevaraya, under Krishnadevaraya, Vijayanagar Empire reached its peak, its zenith. He took it to the heights of glory, like nobody else could. After he passed away, however, there was he did not have his own. He did not have an immediate heir. Okay, so his younger brother Achyutadevaraya became the ruler. Unfortunately, he was not as powerful or strong as his, he was not as, as strong as his brother. He was not as powerful and strong as his brother. And here, what happened was the power lay with a person called Aliya Ramaraya, who was Krishnadevaraya's son-in-law. He was the power behind the throne, so he was the one who was controlling Achyutadevaraya. So here, what was happening was now once Krishnadevaraya passed away. The Bija, the Bahmani sultans, again gained confidence. Till then they were lying low, because the, till then they did not want to attack Vijayanagar. He passed away. They again got back their confidence. And so what they what what, what they happened was first you had the Bijapur rulers who were like they they were the ones who first started attacking him because they were the ones who suffered the heaviest defeats under Krishnadevaraya. So they first attacked it. And after this, what happened was now with Vijayanagar, the Vijayanagar Empire itself in a chaotic situation, Portuguese, Portuguese began to assert their supremacy on the west coast. So on both ends, on one side the Bahmanis, on one side the Portuguese, on both ends Vijayanagar ruler, Vijayanagar Empire was facing attack from both ends. Okay, and the Portuguese, apart from that, of course, they were pretty notorious for their atrocities, like just like the Spanish invasion, you had something called the Portuguese Inquisition in Goa, as notorious as the Spanish Inquisition. Where they forcibly converted many to Christianity, or many native Hindus or Muslims captured and tortured to death. Okay, that's a, that's a different topic altogether. But that happened around during this time. So here, what was happening was Aliya Ramaraya. What he did was he imprisoned Achyutraya on his return from Bijapur. Now Aliya Ramaraya, what he used to do was he did he committed two things. He would take the help of the Bahmani sultans in his own personal battles. That was bad enough. Even worse, what he did was he used to constantly play a one Bahmani sultan against other Bahmani sultan. So what happened was the, the had, like I told you, he had five different Bahmani kingdoms, like he had Bijapur, Golconda, Ahmednagar, and these kingdoms used to keep constantly fighting amongst each other. What Aliya Ramaraya used to do was he used to support one Bahmani sultan against other Bahmani sultan. For, I mean, for his own tactical purposes, which in hindsight would would be pretty disastrous. Okay. So here, what was and apart from that, what Ramaraya did was he started promoting his own family members 
and which made most of the nobles turn around him. So here with the constant, constant infighting going on in Vijayanagar Empire, taking the help of the Bahmani empires. I mean, the worst thing is that they, they took the help of their own Bahmani empires, you know, to settle their personal scores against each other. You know, it was like, it was, you could see it coming. It was something, you could see the destruction coming into the picture. So here, what Bahman, what he, what Bahman, okay, what Ramrai did was, he would go, he would sign a peace treaty with the Bahmani Sultan. He would settle the dispute. He would again go and attack them. Okay. Or he would put one Bahmani ruler against other Bahmani ruler. Which sort of angered, I mean, which sort of used to annoy all the Bahmani soldiers. So what this, and here, like here. Here what happened was, sooner or later, something, something had to give. The Bahmani rulers realized that their constant fighting amongst each other was proving to be beneficial to the Vijayanagar Empire. They realized other thing also, that on their own, they could not defeat the Vijayanagar Empire. On their own, either none of them could defeat the Vijayanagar Empire. So they decided to form the alliances. And that led to the downfall. So here what so here what, what he did was, Adil Shah, the Bijapur ruler, he negotiated with Kudub Shah, the Golconda, the Kudub Shah, the Golconda, Ibrahim Kudub Shah, ruler of Golconda. Okay, so and what and what uh, Kutub Shah he did was he negotiated with Adil Shah and his rival, uh, what you call Hussein Shah. Mind you, Hussein Shah and Adil Shah were bitter rivals, but they they still uh, agreed to ally together for a common purpose. That was against Vijayanagar. So the three main main kingdoms, Bijapur, Golconda, Ahmednagar, the three main kingdoms came together and they formed a common front to defeat the Vijayanagar Empire. And of course, again, they took the help of Bidra and Birar. So it was a five kingdom alliance against Vijayanagar. The first time in life ever, the first time ever, the five kingdoms came together. And they met at a place called Talikota. They met at a place called Talikota, which is like lying, which is currently in the Bijapur district. So here again, the second thing, Bahamani rulers were busy. They, they were planning their strategies, sending spies and all that. Vijayanagar rulers took it, took it, the Aliya Ramraya took it for granted. They were just relaxing. I mean, they thought, they felt that these people attacked us so many times. How will they, what can they do to us? So they took it for granted that nothing is going to happen. They were pretty indifferent. And I mean, they took the two. So yeah, like Ramraya, like what he did was, he got, though he got reports that the enemy movements were coming towards Vijayanagar, he just dismissed them. He's saying that nothing is going to happen. They, they attacked us so many times. What will they do? And that was going to be a disaster. But I mean, he's nevertheless he put some he put his brother Tirumanarai in control of the Krishna River to ensure the Bahmanis were uh, blocked. What the Bahmanis now what the Bahmani rivers did was they saw that the Vijayanagar army was blocking the Krishna River at one point. So they deliberately took them to believe that they were attacking from some other point. They were attacking from some other point. So what Vijayanagar, so the Vijayanagar ruler army army fell for the trick. They went to that particular point where they thought the Bahamanis would attack. And what these Bahamani rulers did was they crossed that particular point. And then January 23rd, 1565, the battle of the Talikota, the battle that brought an end, brought an end the Vijayanagar Empire. I mean, so it was a, so on one side you had the Vijayanagar forces, on the other side you had these five friends, the Bahamani forces, which consisted of Bijapur, Ahmednagar, Golconda, and Bidar and Bearer. And the forces had three layers of artillery. I mean, they were pretty much equipped with artillery, 
so initially uh, for, for actually for initially for some time the vijayanagar forces initially were under heavy fire but after some time what happened was venkatadri raya the brother of aliya ramandraya he, he again attacked heavy attacked the babani forces heavily and ramaraya in spite he was pretty much old he was almost in his 70s he, in spite of that he still fought bravely he still fought bravely against the babani rulers unfortunately at this time this is why i told that getting the muslim archers into the army was going to be a disaster it happened here the muslim there was a muslim the couple of uh, contingent of muslim officers they switched sides just at the crucial point in the battle they switched side that's why i told you in the before getting muslim archers in the army was like good in the short run but in the long run it was going to be a disaster and it was put to here so what happened was the entire contingent of muslim forces they switched side with the bahmani forces 5000 members of the vijayanagar army were surrounded and killed and it goes over and ramaraya himself was struck by a cannon shot i mean the elephant was struck he fell down and he was taken as prisoner so a very tragic ending he was taken to nizam shah so he was given a choice of either converting to islam or not ramaraya refused to convert and he was beheaded the man who beheaded him was ibrahim kuli qutub shah again okay, another irony here kuli qutub shah had a bitter succession battle with his brother so he he escaped from golconda and when he came he took refuge in vijayanagar and the person who gave refuge to him was ramaraya himself but when it came to the final reckoning he was the one who been i mean a very bitter and tragic irony forever there was one and with the death of ramaraya the vijayanagar forces became demoralized they retreated from the battlefield and soon it became a total rout i mean soon it became a total rout so it was apparent that vijay the it was apparent that hampi would be falling so what tirumalarai did was he took the royal treasure out and 1500 elephants he carried it he carried that to a place called penukonda it's in anandapur district the second capital and most of the soldiers like most of the soldiers chieftain they abandoned on hampi but even then also people felt that nothing would be happening to hampi so out of the 3 days the date on which the bahmani forces entered vijayanagar just see the irony of it all january 26th and after on that after 3 days they entered it and soon its the destruction started the greatest one of the greatest empires in the world i mean temples the buildings were broken its treasures were looted prisoners people were captured i mean prisoners were taken there was enhanced massacre for 3 days i mean after i mean after for like it for almost 3 to 4 days entire hampi was ransacked burned looted pillaged and after that it never rose again so one of the greatest empires in the world one of the greatest empires and civilizations in the world came to an end in such a brutal and tragic such a brutal and tragic manner i say one thing you know jews have some jews have something jews have, in jews they have a motto they call it as remember, remember masada they say remember masada where a uh, uh, last ditch stand where all of them committed suicide rather than surrender something i say always you know i say remember talikota i mean i mean it's one thing that not many people actually know what happened at talikota but if you know it this is something that is never be forgotten because like we can see what happened to one of the richest and greatest empires in the world how it fell how it was destroyed and razed and after that yeah after that there were it vijayanagar empire was never the same it was like 
totally broken up and that was the end of the empire.